Eight years ago when I started Zen House, I wrote three words on the blackboard in the office and they were authenticity, quality and generosity. And we try and remain as true to that as possible. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. We've talked on many occasions about the boom in regional dining, about creating a voice in the region and connecting with the growers to deliver their story on the plate. There are some that have made a tree change to make these connections and others that, over decades, have been the beating culinary heart of a region and helped share its story. Kim Curry is the director and executive chef of the Zin House, Lowy Wines, The Pavilion and Althea by Zin. Kim, how are you? Oh, good morning. Very well, thank you. It's good to have you on the show. You've um, made the most extraordinary impact on uh, regional food in, in New South Wales. How much have you seen it change over the last few decades? Over, yeah, 30 odd years enormously and it's lovely now to see so many things that are just taken for granted when people talk about seasonal, regional, local, fresh, paddock to plate, all of those things are expected. It's expected from the customers, it's um, taken as a second nature from so many of of the chefs and the, the teams and the collaboration with growers. And that certainly wasn't the case 30 years ago or even 10 years ago when um, you didn't see the provenance acknowledged, you didn't see, you know, people would be crowd, proud to use a, a, a chicken from Kangaroo Island on a plate in New South Wales or, or just not acknowledge where things came from at, at, at all. So it's lovely to see where the new generations are taken and how much they take it for granted. It's an extraordinary um, shift, but you've been part of making change, making change and creating that shift over a long period of time. I want, I want to go through all of that, but take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? We've always been a food-obsessed family. I have a brother and a sister who are also chefs. Our mother was a wonderful cook. And I guess I really learned to cook because mum had to go to work after her marriage broke down and I had um, other siblings who needed to be cared for and fed and we went through a stage where there wasn't a lot of money and things were tight. Mum and I used to joke that we could write the thousand and one ways with meat and uh, with mince and, and sausage mince book and there were times where we would, because I'm, I'm a New Zealander, we would go and dig for tour tours and that would be one of the weekly weekly meals as well. So uh, a forager from way back. Uh, so yeah, the introduction to food, you know, from, from way back then and one of my first memories is my mother lifting me onto a bench and setting a pan and making me having me make pikelets, instructing me on how to make pikelets. As I said, when I was so little that I couldn't even actually reach the, the stove myself, she'd have to lift me up onto the bench. Take us back to New Zealand. Was was that connection or natural connection with the produce of the region sort of stronger in New Zealand compared to what you experienced when you did come to Australia? It's interesting. There's a real dichotomy there because my siblings um, and watching what's happened in New Zealand, I thought I think they've been behind Australia in the whole local food movement and in, in, in embracing that. But absolutely, as Kiwis, we grow up 
grew up with it. We would forage for mushrooms. We would use whatever was around us. We all had gardens. I, I remember a competition that when I was 10, we had a teacher who took not only, would not only take us out and show us his beehives and the things growing in his own garden, he encouraged our whole class to grow gardens at home and would come on weekends and, and judge us and have little competitions and support us, uh, along with foraging and through streams and, and watercress. And we're very, very aware of what grew in the paddocks and the farms around us. And I think that's a very, a very Kiwi thing. When did you first sort of realise that a career in food was for you? I didn't. I was when I was uh, 17 and uh, I told my careers advisor I wanted to be a lawyer and she said, have you thought about teaching or chiropody, dear? So even that many years ago there was, uh, you know, women weren't expected to go off and, and do anything other than, than, than teaching and nursing. Uh, which is kind of appalling in itself. So I went off to duly prove that I would be a lawyer and fell in love with my nighttime and weekend jobs working in restaurants. And was even though I was waitressing and working tables, I was always obsessed with what they were doing in the kitchen. And my first lessons outside of home were the osmosis of, of, of soaking up what happened in commercial kitchens. And unfortunately or fortunately, I was much more interested in in the, the work and social life around restaurants. And my my university career was, was short-lived. And then I, I came to Australia to do what all Kiwis think they're going to do, which is undertake the, the big overseas adventure, fell into working in restaurants uh, again, and that took me to the country, went and worked for a couple of gentlemen had bought the Candles Hotel, and I was working as their pub cook. And um, that was when I met my then husband and fell into cooking as a way of staying in the country and then over the years in between got really interested in regional food and regional producers and promoting that in, in local the whole local food and wine scene and so I guess over the years um, alternated between food and wine development positions and having restaurants. Take us back to that hotel. Do you have any stories of that time of what it was like in regional New South Wales and, and cooking? It was, well, I was very young. So I was 20 and I uh, would just cook whatever I felt like in the pub, of course. And uh, I guess some of the country pub scene hasn't changed much from, from those days. But people were interested. They loved the fact that we were cooking Food, food from scratch. Uh, but my the real change for me didn't happen until I owned my first real restaurant, which was the Bridgeview Inn in Ralston. And I was six months pregnant when I took it on with my first child and I was 10 days off having my second child when we sold it. The two high, Some of the two highlights of my life, and restaurateurs will relate to this, uh, one of the highlights was buying that restaurant and a much greater highlight was selling it. <laughs> uh, but it was in those years that people would knock on my door, local producers, and come in and say, well, I've got these lettuces or I've got these chickens or these eggs. And at first I found it a bit of a, a nuisance because much like many of the chefs that have come through here over the years, I knew it was easier to pick up a phone and order precisely what I wanted than have to make do 
with what somebody might have grown. But because these people were charming and hardworking and locals and part of my community, more and more I was taking this produce in and using it and realising how fabulous was um, what an honour it was to, to, to have people who were bringing things fresh from their farms. So by the time I opened the Ralston food store in the early 2000s, I was using only what farmers brought in for me and there was no menu. The produce would be put on the big bench in front of me and I would cook from it and that was how the menus were created. And I with think now some people still seem to think it's weird that we do um, set menus but in those days not only did we do a set menu we served it to a whole table including strangers so we would put bowls out for eight people and all eight people at the table would have to share that food obviously pre-COVID and I remember the, the very first night that we opened the Ralston food store uh, and where there was still some nervousness amongst, nervousness amongst some people as to how that would be received. One of those tables of eight, as far as I know, all these years later, still meet annually. They started as strangers, and at the end of the night, they were fighting over who would pay the bill, and then they used to meet every year to continue their friendship. You mentioned that original connection with growers of the region was a little bit of a nuisance with the way that you approached your cookery. What sort of impact did those relationships and that shift have on the way you cooked? It's taught me how to cook. The difference between having a recipe and deciding that maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try that and recognising that the best cooking comes from the garden and the garden is your instructor. So those things that are growing at the same time, you know, that might be pumpkin and, and sage and, and the herbs and the spinach that you rely on in the, in the leaner months that um, inform how a, a ravioli might be might go on a menu, for example, or summer when you're just overloading with tomatoes and basil and, and that informs your cooking. And then the bridging seasons where you're madly trying to preserve all of those things, the peaches and the berries and the, all those sorts of fruits that you know and, and, and vegetables that are going to get you again through some of the, the times where there won't be so much in the garden. But I definitely became a better cook for having to learn what the garden told me was going to be available. Farmers markets are incredibly popular in um, in the big cities these days, but you were integral in establishing farmers markets across regional New South Wales. Tell us how that all started. Remember some of the most exciting days I remember when we started the Orange Farmers Market, there were farmers in tears saying, I've, I have farmed, I have produced for 30 years and this is the first time I've ever spoken to a customer. And it's the most moving experience and somebody saying to somebody like, no, just chomp into this corn cob and see the interaction between the, the customers and the farmers and people, there were farmers that said things like, I don't care if I only sell 10% of my crop to have the independence, not to have to be told what price I'm going to take from a supermarket or from a buyer somewhere down the chain, to have that control and power over my product is, is, is so exciting. And I remember seeing people 
customers turning up and just because now everyone takes it for granted but it was such a novelty at the time and that um, the, the, the power of, of that interaction and the coming together of community was was very, very emotional and, and striking and empowering time. And it's lovely that now it's mainstream. What were some of the challenges you had in creating all of those farmers markets? Because they ended up in Orange and Mudgee and Bathurst and Cowra and had an incredible impact. Uh, the risk taking was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> really, um, uh, <laughs> probably not even worth going into it now, but uh, we just went for it. And if you really had done a full risk analysis or the, 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 the prefects and the organisations had, had, had really probably known what was going on, they would never have been able to, to kick, kick off. But the things that really made it work, one of the and I believe that uh, across all the markets that are, are still going in that, that area that this model works was to go to a community group and ask them to manage it. And that was, you know, the Lions when we did the Bathurst Market and it was Rotary, um, Daylight, um, one of the Rotary Clubs in, in Orange, and enable them to collect a gold coin at the gate and to be involved in managing store fees and liaising with with the producers and the storeholders. And that was, that was a wonderful model because it meant that was money going back into the community and it was very much community-based and ensuring that there was no profit motive. And the other other thing we looked at was that the producers needed to be from the region and if there was a gap then they could come from what we called our, our, our cousins uh, so if you were in Bathurst and you didn't have a producer of bread in Bathurst then you could bring someone from Orange uh, but that, that didn't necessarily happen if there was somebody from that area and one of the things I remember that happened out of the orange market there was a, a chef who at the time had a was running a restaurant in town and he started making bread for the market and that was so good for him that he then opened the what was then called Proven Bakery, I think, in Orange, which was the start of the whole artisan baking market in Orange and it was driven by the demand from the farmer's market initially. It's an extraordinary uh, food bowl where you've carved this incredible career. Tell us a bit about the produce of the region. Well, that's interesting and every area has very, the areas that I've worked in obviously, Orange has products that are different from from Mudgee and we like to be able to see ourselves as, you know, we talked about that whole 100 mile circle as, as, as well. So we kind of see Orange as, as part of our region and, and Mudgee. Mudgee's uh, not necessarily had a lot of products that were distinct to here and over the time that, that changes too. So uh, the hazelnuts used to be important here, asparagus still looking at, at produce someone who might come in and do asparagus so we don't have to put a couple of acres in ourselves but I guess we'll have an each way bet there and put the asparagus in it anyway. Cherries and stone fruit are important. Olives over a long period of time have been great in this region. People are doing lots more interesting things with grapes now too of course. Um, uh, there's uh, lamb. Lamb is, lamb is good in Mudgee. 
But really, we rely more and more on the vegetables that are grown by ourselves and a small number of producers. We're seeing the truffles this season, of course, are phenomenal. And it's it's great after all of these years to be lathering mudgy truffle onto dishes. We've got um, poultry growers in uh, Wellington, Grasslands Poultry, and they have a, a summer lad chicken, which is like... I've had French chefs who have struggled to admit they're as good as French chickens <laughs> and, and but acknowledge that they are. So those small regional producers uh, are, are, are very important. We're the most one of the things we're really looking forward to is doing some aquaponics here. That'll be our next big project. So we can really have some some fish on our menu heart, heart, uh, hand on heart. You moved back to Mudgee in 2011. Tell us about that period of time and the decision and because you've built something so incredible there since then. <laughs> That's an interesting question because in 2006 I moved to Orange from Ralston to work as the executive officer of Brand Orange, which was the food and wine mm-hmm. development and promotional um, organisation in Orange. It was a really exciting time. There were so many people doing great things and so supportive of the work that myself and that organisation were doing, and I loved it. I just completely felt um, supported and and enjoyed that time very, very much. And almost at the same time as I moved to Orange, I got involved with David Lowe and he was in Mudgee and I had just left left the area, moved my kids into school in Orange and, and formed this job in this community that I absolutely loved. So for five years, we commuted. I would come to Mudgee on weekends mostly and he would come to Orange midweek. And despite years of the Orange community trying to convince David Lowe that he needed to move to Orange, uh, eventually I was the one that gave in and I, I moved to Mudgee and... Uh, and um, that's that story. Uh, tell us a bit about what you've created there. It's the most incredible food offering. You mentioned growing your own vegetables as well. Tell us a bit about what you've created. Well, we have now probably a, a hit there of market gardens. We've increased the plantings of fruiting trees. We're growing organically, biodynamic, biodynamically permac- with um, using permaculture principles as well. Uh, we have plans, obviously, for more and more things to be self-sufficient, but we never want to stop being able to support local producers as, as well. So, for example, we have hives here, but it's a local apiarist who looks after those, extracts the honey and returns that to us for, for, for our use. We have a cellar kitchen, and in that cellar kitchen is Analdo Kalakamo. I don't know for those people that remember AC Butchery, Carlo and Angela Kalakamo were very close friends of mine, and their children are now living in the area, and Ani is our butcher and produces all charcuterie in-house. We're really, really proud of that. We have our bakery, um, artisan sourdough bakery and patisserie in town called Althea by Zen and that's Althea is my mother's name and obviously as I told you earlier my mother is largely responsible for my love of food along with the family's love of food and Althea is also means in Greek as wholesome and the healer 
So my mother was enormously um, amused when I told her when we went to register the name that Althea is also the name of the largest um, marijuana growers, commercial um, legal marijuana growers in, uh, in Australia. Uh, so there's, there we have the, the our pavilion at Lower is our event space, so we do 50 weddings a year. Uh, we thought we'd cap it at 30 and now we've capped it at 50. Uh, the cellar kitchen provides up to 500 picnic meals a week uh, through, in, through the, the cellar door. And the Zin House is the, our restaurant, of course, which has now been going for over eight years. And the changes we've made there, if I'm not preempting your next question, <laughs> I guess the, the thing we're really proud of here is that we've capped our numbers to about 40 and we now do lunches five days a week and no dinners. And that was something that we had been wanting to bring in earlier, but COVID changed the necessity for us to keep our nights for longer because obviously for two years things were tough in the restaurant industry. But we've now made good on that promise and that's for the life balance for our, our staff and also we hope that in times where recruitment of really good teams, recruitment and retention is difficult, that by staff working during the day and being able to have a life at night, that that will not only make a difference to their lives but to the quality of what we offer in the restaurant. What sort of impact has that change had on you? Oh, well, at the moment, um, with um, staff, you know, with, with illness and COVID and, and the various changes that have had, um, we're all still working a lot harder than we would, would have liked to. But it's, we, can, we can all see the change and can see when people come in in the mornings and they've had a good night's sleep and they've thought about their food and they've thought about their dishes and thought about things they want to do and they're fresh and ready to do it. And everyone knows what those double shifts are like and to come off you know, those, those, those big days and then come into a, an, another day is, 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 is really, really tough. And, and it's, that's where we get into this thing of thinking it's a young person's game and it doesn't have to be. And this way we think that's much more su sustainable. But obviously we're also a set menu restaurant. We've never, ever done a la carte. It's, I just, I just, I hate a la carte. I think we personally, I mean, I like it if I'm going to a restaurant, that's fine. But from my expression, I believe that we should be creating food, that we know what a balance is. And we all know the guest that comes in and orders off an a la carte, you know, they have a chicken pate and then they'll have the, the confit duck and then the chocolate tart and then the cheese, you know, like we know that that's not how people, and, and, and then a latte to finish, that if we can curate, curate a person's experience across a number of courses and it, of course this is completely this is not degustation this is just a set menu it's a it, it's a series of courses that follow a natural flow and uh, these days people seem to think that set menu and degustation are interrelated inter inter you know what the word i'm looking for is interchangeable but but they're not at all of course and that's one of the things that, that we, we stand by. Another is that we do not turn tables. We have one sitting. If you come for lunch, you come at 12 or 12.30 or 1 o'clock, that, that table is yours. And that's a very big part of the sort of restaurant we are. So where people are getting used to coming in and out and dining in an hour and a half, two hours max, doesn't really allow the kind of experiences we want for a restaurant like this where 
sometimes it's, you know, it's an hour in before you've had that drink or two and you've settled in and you've passed the, the, the polite conversation and you're getting to the meaningful conversations and that's, that's a big part of the experience that, that we like to offer here. And the last thing I would say about the innovations that, that, that I think are important for us at Zen um, that I'm quite proud of in the last year since COVID came in, I said, we're taking that payment up front. And there was a lot of discussion about whether that was a sensible business decision. And I said, these days it's not a sensible business decision to allow people not to show up to a restaurant. Everyone in the industry knows the issues of the no-shows and what it costs you as a business. And now we, we don't even get comment about that. We don't get pushed back. It's just accepted as, as a normal part of business, just as if you were going to a show booking a play, that uh, if you're going to come to a restaurant and we've put all that respect in, including the fact that you can't, you know, we're not turning those tables over, then you're going to pay for that in advance. The restaurants in the city, um, it could be said, have a different audience or expectation to that in the regions. You've had um, multiple uh, restaurants and award-winning venues. What's important when running a restaurant in the country? It's all about the experience and the warmth and the hospitality, um, authenticity. Eight years ago when I started Zen House, I wrote three words on the blackboard in the office and they were authenticity, quality and generosity. And we try and remain as true to that as possible. So if we ever have to question something, you know, like how much truffle do you put on a dish or... um, uh, the expense of, of of running a garden or putting another garden on, all those sorts of things, they always have to run the test of of, of those those words that we use to, to motivate ourselves. I think if people are coming to the country, they expect warmth and hospitality. And I don't understand why anybody would run a restaurant anywhere, city or in country or anywhere else, if you weren't interested in being hospitable. And one of the challenges that I, I notice we we battle with it and I've noticed it very much when I dine out is I'm calling it hospitality fatigue. People are so exhausted, so been through so much, so stressed, staff shortages are, are biting so hard, owners are having to do so much themselves. But there's almost an attitude that you should be you know, pleased that we're here to serve you and, you know, you're, aren't, aren't you lucky that we're doing you this, this service? Well, I think it's really important that we all remember to be as customer focused as possible. You've done some many events over the years in regional New South Wales. Is there is there an event or two that really stands out for you? Oh, lots. Uh, one was the Ralston Street Feast, which was created many years ago, and it was the most incredible community event because it really did engage people at all levels. So we fed 300 people under the plains trees down the main street of Ralston. Local school kids grew snails uh, to as one of the courses. So we had all those incredible educational benefits of kids engaging with what was involved. Mind you, many of the snails never made it to the table. They ended up going home with the kids as pets. And all the produce, produce was, was, was from the area. Local people provided the labour free of charge. Everybody came on board to cook and serve tables and, and, and make things for it. Uh, and it people just loved the idea of 
dining outside and in the street and it became, a, I believe it's still, a really, really s- strong community event that brings, brings people into town. Another was the Canounder at Home, the 100-mile dinner and similar things, groups of people working together, people from across the community using their labour to promote producers and tourism and showcasing great food and wine, but with a real authentic uh, collaboration behind it. And many, many years ago before that, the Tablescape events in Mudgee, where we created all the ceramics, or the, a lot of the glassware even was, was, was handmade for the occasion. There was something created called a Mudgee Bush Oven, where all the chefs and cooks in town were given a Mudgee Bush, bush Oven and told to go out and create their, their, a dish that, that, represent, that, that they could cook in this oven. And at the entrance to the feast part of this night, which culminated after a week of workshops of people cooking and making ceramics and going out to growers, people came in through a walkway of fires with mudgy bush ovens cooking one of the courses over it and that was the first impression as, as you came in to this feast. For, again, it must be a magic number for me, again, for the 300 people being fed inside the Cragmore Barrel And in fact, I think that all the, the wine in Cragmore made that year was written off to smoke tape. It was the, the earliest smoke tape Mudgy had known. Your influence and impact has been absolutely extraordinary on regional food. What, what do you love about what you do? It's an interesting question. <laughs> it's so ingrained in me. I don't know um, what else I would do that would give me that degree of pleasure. It's I love the garden. I love I love people who garden. I always say that the best cooks are also gardeners. And I love cooking and I love providing for people. So I guess it's the perfect combination of those sorts of things. And then as the years have gone by, we've developed more and a more interest in things that are beautiful, whether that's art or piece of ceramics or a lovely piece of vintage silver tableware. And that's become over later years, something that I've enjoyed in introducing to Zen House as well is the beauty of it, even the flowers and florals in the rooms that apply, we apply the same principles to. They have to come from the season, they have to come from the garden, so they're not commercial and it, it, it might be something very simple or something incredibly beautiful, but they all add to the layers of the dining experience and they all add to the layering of the opportunity as one human being to contribute something lovely for other people. Well, Kim, thank you for all you've done for regional food in Australia. It's an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a bit of your story. Um, Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for the interest. Bye, Anthony. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.